Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Albert Oligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others as well. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today, such a pleasure to welcome onto the show Stefan Flodman, who is the Global Director of MindWorks. And MindWorks is the cognitive science lab of Greenpeace. We've all heard of Greenpeace. They do some amazing work. And they use behavioral science and neuroscience to make campaigns more effective, more emotionally resonant, and ultimately more successful. They are a unit of Greenpeace. They are based in Southeast Asia, but they work with Greenpeace globally. And they also help organizations uh, that are mission aligned, so external organizations that are mission aligned with Greenpeace. They help them as well with their campaigns. Stefan's been with Greenpeace since 1993 in one way or another. So he's seen the organization evolve over the years, over the decades as well. He's originally from Germany and is now based in Taiwan. So he's joining us from Taiwan and I'm here in London and we're going to have a really great conversation. Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever and Visa to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they're able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. As I mentioned a minute ago, today it's such a pleasure to welcome onto the show Stefan Flodman, Global Director of MindWorks, a division of Greenpeace. Stefan, welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you very much, Alberto. I'm uh, very happy to be here and thanks for all these um, flattering words. Um, I'm very curious to talk to you a little bit about different ways of philanthropy and uh, different ways of working to change the world. Perfect. That sounds great. We, we definitely want to change the world, especially as we're heading up to 2030 for the uh, Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, I guess we could start by finding out a little bit about MindWorks. What is the organization or the unit all about? Yeah, so, so MindWorks is uh, a lab, uh, a group of uh, researchers who are a little bit like a garage project in, uh, in Greenpeace. So we, we have a bit of freedom to innovate and uh, create new ways of uh, working in Greenpeace. And uh, the idea of MindWorks was uh, to eventually dig into the latest uh, cognitive science, so social psychology, uh, everything that is coming up with uh, behavior science, neuroscience, and develop new ways and tools to uh, engage people, to do audience research, to, uh, to shift mindsets uh, as a, a major way of shifting systems. And tell me about uh, MindWorks. So how did it come about? So like I said, we're, it's based in Southeast Asia, but you know, it engaged with Greenpeace globally. How did MindWorks come about? Yeah, we were, um, some people of us in Greenpeace were kind of wondering why we had a natural science unit 
for uh, now almost 30 years. Uh, so that informs us on climate science, on fishery science, uh, on agriculture. And uh, we never had a social science unit. Although our mission is actually to, to create sci- change in societies, but we never really looked in uh, what we could learn from science there. So we came up with the idea that uh, we should actually create one of these, uh, uh, or, or, or a social uh, science lab. And uh, at that time, I was a program director in Greenpeace East Asia. I developed a proposal and my boss said, okay, Let's try and do that. And uh, since then, we are we, we, we hosting basically this global surveys uh, in the East Asian office. Excellent. So very enlightened of your boss to give you the green light and, and let you spread your wings. And, and here you are. How many people are involved with the unit? And what are some of the, uh, the juicy projects, as it were, that you're, you're working with? Yeah, we are, we are six researchers right now in this unit. Um, all a little bit specialized. Uh, some are also more now uh, in, in, in translating the signs into tools. Some are, are translating them into trainings. Uh, some are more specialized on audience research. And, uh, but we, we uh, work uh, in an agile mode. So as a team, basically in sprints, where we are concentrating on one project and then trying to Uh, spread it uh, in different ways uh, into uh, our audience communities, which is other Greenpeace offices or other organizations that are interested uh, in getting a webinar, a training, or just reading our documents. And uh, the newest project that we're working on is uh, uh, we call the Disrupted Mind. And it is uh, a longer piece of research that we started in response to COVID Uh, because we really wanted to find out uh, what opportunities are actually arising from a crisis to influence uh, or change mindsets, uh, to use basically knowledge of psychology to see what is happening to the minds of people in crisis and how it actually can be used to steer positive change instead of steering negative change. So, for instance, if you look into just the last couple of months, Um, say the combination of the COVID pandemic, uh, extreme weather events, and Afghanistan have in a few months eradicated philanthropic investments of decades, I would say. In the last couple of months, poverty is up, hunger is up, polarization is up, uh, inequality is up, gender equality is down, education is bruised, ecosystems are destroyed and temperature is still going up. So uh, the last couple of months for philanthropy, you know, if we look at the big picture is, you know, um, I mean, Afghanistan is a good example for that. You know, what we're losing in, in, in years of investment there in gender equality is gone overnight. Uh, but the same is actually with COVID. Uh, you had uh, Dr. Griffiths uh, here uh, talking from Oak, Uh, he clearly showed or, or said, you know, they had to reinvest a lot into uh, domestic violence uh, in, in, in programs uh, on that side because it really increased. If you look at uh, poverty indexes uh, in a lot of countries in the world, you know, a lot of people dropped under the poverty line. So a lot of the work that we have done has been 
uh, eradicated and it will not be picked up, you know, uh, in, in six months later. You know, we will have to work a lot of time for that. So you picked up on some really very interesting points and, um, and there were three, three areas that you've grabbed onto there that I was going to ask you specifically. But if we're looking at the state of affairs today and we're looking at behavioral change and we're looking at, at uh, attitudes and awareness, the three bits that I had sort of made in my notes before starting the conversation with you today, one, one was about vaccines and COVID-19. The other one was about climate, climate change and building back better and the behaviors that we need to embrace in order to to move things in the right direction. And the third one was about exactly that, refugees, displaced persons. What are you doing and what can be done to make sure that these behaviors, whether it's about vaccines and getting vaccinated or refugees and embracing those new arrivals into our communities or climate and recycling more, being more aware of our carbon footprint, all of these things. You, your hands are full. Tell me a little bit about where you're starting with these things and, and what are the main points that you're, 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 you're flagging up? So one of the insights that is coming out of uh, the disrupted mind research that we actually came up with is that crises are actually very good opportunities to change mindsets. Um, in, say, in normal life, uh, we have a quite fixed, or most people have quite a fixed worldview. You know, they have, a, they have created basically their structure, and uh, our brain is actually meant to fit everything what we hear into that structure. We don't really like uh, surprises. We don't really like uh, to need to reorient uh, we just basically follow our way. We have loads of habits, you know, that we're just following without thinking. Uh, when a crisis is arising, um, most people are actually thrown into a state of disorientation. Um, suddenly they realize that certain things don't work the way anymore, like that, that they worked before. And, and for that, basically, their, their mindset and their, work, their worldview is actually crumbling. Uh, this is a very good moment in time, you know, when, uh, when you can actually intervene and eventually say, uh, what about basically changing this or changing that, you know? So uh, I think we should, as, as philanthropists, uh, utilize these moments far better. Um, we generally then have uh, the impression, yeah, but the normal emotional mindset that is actually appearing in these situations is fear. Uh, and, and a lot of people, I mean, um, politicians, but also um, uh, other uh, interest groups are utilizing this kind of fear to, uh, to create polarization, you know, to create conflicts, uh, to eventually push certain legislation down the throat of people. Uh, and, and philanthropists are very often saying, yeah, but crisis works always against us. But if we are looking into uh, especially early stages of crisis, it is quite fascinating that the largest amount of people uh, of a disaster community are actually not only not panicking uh, or 
uh, suddenly reverts to extremely egoistic behavior, but that we actually see a major surge in altruistic behavior, a major surge in inclusive behavior, so that very often uh, victims of, of disasters say that the early days after the disaster appeared to them almost like a societal utopia, how people without uh, uh, prejudices were actually helping each other and psychologists basically build that or, or, or explain that by saying that people create a post-disaster identity. So everybody who has been affected by the disaster is friends. And, uh, and you create that inclusiveness. Um, this is an extremely good starting point to talk about inclusiveness, you know, to talk about why, you know, we, we, we should be more welcome to people who are actually uh, affected by a crisis. Uh, much better than in a situation, you know, where you're sitting and doing your normal job and nobody basically cares about. The, the same is basically in these situations, we can start talking about resilience. We can start talking about adaptation. Uh, when we start about adaptation, we can eventually then start talking about prevention uh, and mitigation. Uh, it's just basically, we need to understand where people are in their minds. And during crisis, they actually very often far more receptive and open. This disappears. You know, we had that in COVID as well. We had these phases in the beginning of COVID after in the first wave. And then you normally drop into something like a dissolution phase. You know, uh, that is a phase where you need to be a bit more careful because at that moment, people start doubting that it will get better. And then they start looking for uh, who is responsible. And then they refer back to their old identities and they start basically splitting up. That is when the anti-vaxxers came up. You know, that is basically when we had uh, people falling back into their herds, you know, and Republicans were thinking one thing, you know, and Democrats were thinking the other thing. Um, and, but if you, if you eventually manage to create uh, a combined worldview in the first weeks, you know, you then you probably don't ha or have less of a problem to fall back in the other, in the other times. Hmm. The time then is now for a lot of these issues. And if we're looking at Greenpeace, immediately you think one thinks climate, like the, the paramount topic, even though you're much broader than that. But if we're looking at the state of affairs of climate right now, there's so many extreme events happening uh, that you're seeing wildfires happening, you're seeing floods, you're seeing various other things, almost sort of back to back that are keeping are, are making people wonder whether some of these tipping points are a little bit closer than than we had expected. And we're seeing some of those things now. What's Greenpeace doing right now to seize that moment to to get people's increased sense of community and perhaps social cohesion and leverage that to to get things moving in the right direction? So what we're trying to do right now is actually to experiment a little bit with empowering the communities that are impacted to eventually see not how we are coming in and rescuing them, which we did before, but how we can come in and help them to rescue themselves, to eventually, you know, then build up that social structure that uh, we not only need to then weather through the next crisis, but also to become political and actually work on preventing 
uh, climate change from a uh, from a political side. Uh, so so these are some of the newer newer approaches that we are doing. Another thing, uh, uh, we started you know in the, in the post COVID world and and pre election world in Germany. Uh, we are now working on conversation formats. So uh, we're not going out anymore and telling people something. Uh, in, the, in the first conversation format, we actually listened to people and said, we, we're just here to listen to you, how you experience COVID and what it basically means for you. Um, which was very, I mean, it was, was a unique experience for us because um, it was so much appreciated because so many people, you know, were not expecting that they were listened to, which I think is already, I mean, um, a sad, a, a sad fact, you know, for a democracy, you know, that that people are all already said, I feel empowered just because you listen to me, you know, and then the, the next round of conversations that so we touring through through Germany and uh, doing these listening tours. Then the second round that we're doing right now is that we're just uh, creating events where young generations and old generations listen to each other. So we, we're just creating conversation because after COVID, there's a lot of generational animosity, you know, uh, in a lot of countries. You know, young people see that they take the burden of the economic loss you know, their future is screwed, uh, but they were not really at risk. Uh, their lifestyle, you know, was far more impacted than, you know, the lifestyle of old people who only, only sit in front of the television. You know, so, so there's a, there is a lot. Then, then the first ones who get freedom and vaccination are, again, the old people. You know, so there is a lot of friction that is actually created. And, and that builds on the friction of the generational conflict on climate. So we eventually said... Uh, we just create conversations that, that young and old are actually talking to each other and created a game around, you know, how they could actually converse with each other. And it's, again, you know, it's highly appreciated, you know, that, that there are just somebody who's basically saying, okay, I'm initiating, I was not expecting to hear this, you know, it was so good to talk about this, you know, so, so I think, there I find there's a there's a new Greenpeace also evolving out of the work that we're actually doing. You know, that it's not anymore we are the heroes, we are the preachers, you know, it's more about we can listen, uh, we can be we facilitate basically the conversations within society. Um, and I think that's if we're talking about mindsets, changes in societies, and uh, I think there are quite some exciting new. Uh, pathways. Yeah, these town halls that you mentioned are, are these these exercises about listening to people, uh, which I find really fascinating. And, you, and I think you definitely need to have that interaction. The whole piece about not everybody having a voice. So a lot of the times you have new arrivals to a society, to a community, who may not feel comfortable expressing themselves in a town hall, in a setting, in a listening tour, as it were, because they just don't feel like they, they'd they be welcomed or they should be speaking. How can you go beyond that so that the listening tour also has a sort of proactive reaching out to those individuals who may, may not automatically express themselves? A lot of the, the conversation that we start 
are one-to-ones. You know, they're not group conversations. Um, it, it still means that the person needs to come to you. You know, we are not ch chasing the people and say, you know, I need to talk to you now, you know, and, and, and whatsoever. So the person needs to come to you. But the one-to-one -one format, especially as a beginning of a conversation, is very, very helpful. We do that in meetings uh, uh, very often as well, you know, that we would start uh, in splitting up people into pairs and they have one-to-one -one conversation. It really opens us trust uh, and surprisingly trust to the whole group, you know. So, so if, if, you, if you start a meeting, do one-to-one -one conversations, and, and, and you suddenly, you know, have a development of trust in the entire group and suddenly afterwards group conversations are actually much more open than, uh, than they have been, you know, easy, I mean, little trick for your next meeting, you know, that you're doing. Um, the, the other thing is, how do, you, how do you get people who feels, who, who do feel so disempowered, you know, that uh, they wouldn't even come to talk to you? The organization more in common in, in Germany as well now has, has come up with a nice study about where to go to have a conversation. You need to go to your audiences and you need to go where your audience is actually comfortable to talk. Um, uh, I mean, if we, we very strongly advocate a, a principle in our audience research, for instance, where we're saying we need to move from audience-centric work to audience-empathetic work. Uh, you, you really need to come to that point where you try to understand your audiences and empathize with them. Then you find them uh, at the point where they're actually prepared to talk to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Are the challenges that the various units in Greenpeace come up to you with for assistance and also those challenges that some of those external organizations are coming up to you with for assistance, are they similar? Or are, are there reoccurring themes that you... you, you... Yeah, I do think that um, the, the answer, I'm giving them all these... I'm, I'm giving them all this information and all these facts and still he's not changing. You know, that's... I mean, that is a very common thing. You know, not only from, from, from Greenpeace people, but from any kind of activist out there. You know, we are, we are still largely preachers we are not uh, and, and 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 from a from a scientific based perspective you know so we say you know we have studied the science we know everything you know in in whatever field we are working in and we're actually talking to people and they still don't change so what do they need to do so what do they need to do because that's again you touched on something that i think is extremely relevant to most organizations i know and exactly that. It's like, you know, we have all the evidence, we have a lot of the research, we're passing that on, we're communicating that to people, and people aren't, aren't changing, they're not embracing this behavior or that behavior. It's such a frustration. I hear that all the time. What do you do? It's pretty easy, you know, in all these fields, if that is education for your kids, or if that is basically advocacy work in the public, the first step is to listen, you know? The moment where you are prepared to hear what the and, and really hear what the other person is saying, um, it is not only you know the best audience research that you can do, you know, but it is also a signal to the other person uh, that the person is valued, 
you know that uh, that that their their opinion is not immediately you know discarded uh, that you have an eye to eye relationship you know so uh, so listening is so important and then listening also gives you the kind of points where you say okay there we are not so different but this is the point you know where we are different so how can i get him to understand that by himself you know how can he trip over the truth himself beside and other than uh than than me telling him you know so we are trying to teach people conversation formats where they largely ask questions you know they're not giving answers you know if people finally come to the point that they can give their own answers. And we do that in our trainings as much as we then basically say, you should do that with the people. When we started our trainings, we made the same mistake. You know, we went out, preached people, you need to do it the different way. Nothing happened. You know, nothing happened in the organizations. Only when we changed our formats, you know, and, and made it experiential, you know, gave people the opportunity to, to discover it themselves. You know, then people started to, to understand, you know, why they needed to work differently. Then, you know, I had a colleague, you know, that I found very impressive, um, you know, who said after a training, it's even harder to unlearn the things that we have learned than learning the things that, you know, you tell us. We are also habitual. You know, we are habitual activists. We are just, you know... Hope, we, we're thinking, you know, the easiest way is to just continue the things that we're doing that we have done for a time. And even in Greenpeace, we are now with Greenpeace for four years. There are loads of people in the organization that, no, we still do it the old way. You know, it's still basically, this is how we always did it and we are still doing it. You know, in a progressive organization, a lot of conservative thinking. Mm -hmm. And, and you've seen that, right? I mean, you've been, again, you've been with Greenpeace since 1993. So you've seen that. How did you, how did you get into the whole thing, by the way? What, what made you, um, what made you get into Greenpeace? Oh, I was, uh, I mean, I, I studied uh, marine biology. I was always interested in environmental work uh, um, and, and did uh, voluntary work, not for Greenpeace, for other organizations before. Um, but uh, was really on my academic career path. So I had a PhD lined up in, in Australia. And then um, a friend of mine said, oh, he's applying for a job in Greenpeace. And I said, oh, you know, I applied for the same job just to get the experience of for a job interview. That was the end of the friendship, but it was the beginning of my Greenpeace career. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you never looked back. No, I mean the 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 at this point, uh, one of the main reasons actually why I joined Greenpeace was why I found because the people that interviewed me I found extremely interesting. Mm. You know, so uh, I, I I rather joined Greenpeace for the people. Then uh, two years later, uh, they even offered me a job uh, uh, to do my PhD in Australia. To again, uh, go to Australia, and so I had a rethinking. And then I actually thought, mm, you know, so many years working on this minuscule problem, while I'm now already working on, I mean, at that time I was their fisheries campaigner, where I was really working on global fisheries management systems. Um, I couldn't really imagine. And then I stayed with Excellent. the guys. 
Well, good thing you did. Good thing you did. Um, do you have a key takeaway for our audience? Is there one thing you'd love for them to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? Yeah, I think um, I would love to see more crisis philanthropy. Uh, uh, and not a crisis philanthropy that is trying to prevent the worst, but a crisis philanthropy that is trying to utilize the opportunities that crises are actually creating. And the second part is, you know, when I, when I, when I again listen to Doug Griffith's uh, uh, podcast with you, mm. and I really like the Oak Foundation, how they are working, but we are still thinking in issues. You know, we're thinking in plastic, in climate, in, uh, in, in food, where they now develop a, a project. I think we need to think more in, uh, in systems that need to eventually change, uh, societies that basically need to change. And portfolios should rather be uh, prevention, resilience, and reaction. Uh, moving away from uh, these, these physical silos that we're creating around an issue. Then we always run after the back roll that we're getting through the crisis. You know, plastic is getting worse again. You know, climate is getting worse again. You know, poverty is getting worse again. Education is getting worse again. You know, if we're looking at it more from a change is happening and we're utilizing in the best way this change, either through prevention, through resilience, or through reaction uh, and positive change, I think then we can also be more sustainable uh, in a time that will be crisis driven. I mean, uh, what we have seen right now is just a role play for the next decades to come. So if, if, if civil society is not prepared to learn how to create change in crisis, we will be marginal in the next decades. And on that sobering thought, Stefan, really such a pleasure. Welcome you for the first time onto the Do One Better podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I hope to uh, see you again in the not too distant future. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, it was really a pleasure to be here and able to talk to you. Perfect. And that's a wrap. You've been listening to a great conversation with Stefan Floodman, Global Director of Mindworks, a unit of Greenpeace. For more information about this show and a hundred other interviews with remarkable thought leaders, just visit our website at lij.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already. Please share widely with your friends and family and colleagues. Leave us a review and I'll catch you next week.